Greetings, dear listeners. Back in the USA, I reconnect with Shadi. We do a deep dive into what it means to be very online. How much of our preoccupations and maladies are a product of being too into living in cyberspace? From Kanye's car crash outbursts to getting sucked into the whirlpool that is Twitter, we just can't seem to snap into talking about what really matters. Stick around for the bonus episode, for paying members only, where Shadi and I get into some weird and hilarious theological discussions before veering into my impressions from a recent trip to Taiwan and Japan. If you're not yet a subscriber, do become one by visiting wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. Japan, which was in many ways even more interesting. Um, cool. We can talk about Kanye West. That, uh, <laughs> oh, you're, are you familiar with what's been happening? Um, so the thing about Kanye is that <clears throat> I don't think I really, I mean, I, I, I know of the man's work, but I, I don't think I've ever, <laughs> you know, spent any time listening to the man's work. And so you mean Kanye, his music, or do you mean his commentary? No, no, no. I do mean his music, and 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 so, I, I, it's not like I'm not aware of who Kanye is, but I really haven't been following. <laughs> and then you know, people who like have been fans of Kanye and stuff like that, I've just sort of heard over the last few years is, you know, he's brilliant, uh, he's a genius of sorts, but he's clearly schizophrenic, uh, like he's got mental illness, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and. Uh, you know, so watching this, uh, like everything else, it's this kind of like pop culture horror show. You know, you watch it with kind of, you know, some kind of, I don't know, resigned, uh, I don't know, kind of like... Fascination? Fascination, yeah. But then every so often I just remind myself, like, we're all transfixed by a man losing his mind in real time in front of us. And it's really sad, you know? It's just, it's, it just seems awful. Uh, yeah, but, it's... So yeah. I'll just share something with our dear listeners so yeah. they're just aware of some context. Um, right before well, uh, right before this episode, I just had, you know, 20 minutes and I was like, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to start like some new like work stream. So I, I saw that Kanye was trending and I went to the InfoWars website to see what all the hullabaloo was about. And I actually watched about 15 minutes of Kanye, Alex Jones, and Nick Fuentes, the um, the white nationalist. I'm not even sure what to call him. But, Is he a Hispanic um, white nationalist or something? <laughs> the Latinx white nationalist? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's a it, no. It's a good point. No, but he's he's. Um, I guess we can just call him a Nazi. I think. What do right? you call people? No, <laughs> neo Nazi. Yes. A neo Nazi. I think. Um, or actually, maybe I don't even know anymore. Okay, so what I what I heard, and we're not going to include links because I I, f- I felt dirty watching this. Yeah, people can. It's find good it. to be aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they really wanted to, um, but it's obviously not something one wants to encourage. And also, I think you're precisely right that watching Kanye West in this kind of state. 
there's clearly a mental illness issue and it's not even just like my, like and I that's actually mean towards people who are mentally ill no precisely because a lot of people you know suffer from depression anxiety whatever else it might be we're not talking about that we're talking about someone who is just in a different plane yeah and it's a, it's sad to watch yeah no i think that's um right. so and just fyi to people i i couldn't I don't really understand why he was doing this, but Kanye was wearing not a mask, like a COVID mask, but a mask covering his entire face. Hmm. And so you don't actually see Kanye, the person. Well, he is there as far as we can tell. I mean, it'd be pretty hard to impersonate him on Alex Jones's show. So it, it does appear to be Kanye, but you can't, he's wearing, it's really weird. It's really bizarre. Um, and the crazy thing, too, is that basically Alex Jones com- comes out of it looking like a moderate. Yeah. yeah. Because because Kanye basically starts saying things like, I like Hitler. I like Hitler. Yeah. And that's not even hyperbole. Yeah, he's, he's like defending. He said, like, Nazis got Hitler. a bad rap. We shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't criticize <laughs> him so much. We, we over criticize the Nazis, I think, was the line I saw on Twitter <laughs> yeah, earlier today. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it's like and then and then Alex Jones, you you see his face and he's like, What did I get myself into? And he's trying to push back gently. And it's just like a very it's a very odd thing to watch. And um also Kanye said something like, um, there's a reverse Holocaust against him and that um he, he, but that's not, I guess he said stuff like that before, but he that's a kind of um and he talks very explicitly about um, Jewish media, like all these tropes, which you think that even people who are anti-Semitic, they try to be subtle generally, yeah. you know, Kanye at this point, there's no subtlety. It's like the most explicit anti-Semitism I've ever seen in any kind of public performance. Um, so anyway, that's just some context of like, I'm just sort of shocked that this has happened to him. Uh, but anyway, Um, And it is relevant because Kanye did have dinner with Donald Trump a few days ago. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe that's something to to also sort of kick around a little bit, right? So (laughs) I don't even know how to kick it around, right? It's it's obviously, you know, uh, classic Trump dog whistle, you know, I don't know. And then classic Trump. You know, Kanye brought someone, I don't know who it was, like denial, non-denial, whatever the hell. But it's really interesting is, you know, um, then again, I'm not really following it that closely. I'm kind of still jet lagged and messed up from this trip, but just sort of passively following it. It's 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 sort of been a scramble to to pin Trump and Nazism and fascism on the Republicans more broadly so that they're, you know, they're everyone's watching that they're not condemning him enough. But then you saw like even Bibi condemned. I don't know if you saw that. Bibi Netanyahu condemned Trump. He said, this is not okay. And you have to not do that again. So, you know, it's even, even that little subplot was, was sort of interesting because, you know, after the midterms, um, it feels like the, the, uh, you know, Republicans are now trying to, I think they've, they feel like they have their chance to uh, rally around the f- fact that Trump is a loser, that like all the Trump candidates lost and cost him this election and all the rest of that. And, you know, the new standard carrier is Ron DeSantis. And, uh, and, and, you know, 
I, I feel like insofar as I've been watching uh, at all the sort of mainstream and, and liberal left part of the spectrum, they're all doing two things at once. One is, you know, out of one side of their mouth saying DeSantis is just as bad, if not as if not worse than Trump in some ways, because, you know, he's less crazy or something, but has all the, you know, all the evil and white supremacy and racism, it's it's all embedded in, in DeSantis. And on the other hand, desperately, desperately trying to keep Trump in the game and tied to the Republican Party, which, you know, I don't know, I, I uh, after the elections, yeah, it just seems to me, you know, that it's it's the most brilliant thing that Biden managed to do. Uh, yeah, and I guess you and I haven't really spoken since the elections, but the most brilliant thing that Biden managed to do is to do the whole democracy is dying thing, right? Like it, it when he gave that speech about coming to defend democracy, um, you know, I was just like, ah, that's not going to work. That's it's it's nonsense. But you know, it 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 worked, and it was a brilliant move when you when you take at the same time into consideration that, you know, Democrats funded Trumpists in the primaries uh, and, you know, against more moderate Democrat, uh, Republicans. And so, you know, like now looking back at everything that's going on, it's the best thing that can happen to Biden is that Trump runs again. And the best thing that can happen for the Democrats is that, uh, you know, Trump runs, uh, gets the nomination, and then I think gets blown out uh, in the next elections. And so, you know, it's it's I, you know, but me, let's I, not take it. But, but that I I, I just love the thinking. cynicism, and that's you know, like and and pointing out how cynical the Democratic Party was in this whole election gives me. I, I respect Democrats so much more after this this last after the midterms because of the dark cynicism of where they went. And basically played the entire base on this on this democracy is dying thing. You know, I I feel like because I'm 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 less you know uh, tribally affiliated I think than you. I can just sort of appreciate this more. I feel like maybe reading your tweets are a little more uh, <laughs> less happy with the Democrats playing that game. But you know, well, whether or not it was effective, it, I think it's you know morally. I mean, for. Something can be effective and bad simultaneously. Um, like, how much did Biden's democracy is dying speech actually make a difference? How much did that overall framing actually help Democrats? I think we have to be careful about assuming that this quote unquote worked. But even if it did work, or at least it didn't hurt Democrats, and I think, you know, I was I was wrong about that. I actually thought it was a bad strategy. I thought it would backfire. Yeah. Clearly it didn't, at least Me not too. in any you know obvious way. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact from my perspective that you know, I have a strong moral um and political objection to this kind of democracy is dying rhetoric. First and foremost, because it's not accurate. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's true that democracy was on the verge of dying. So um, there's that. Um, but it's politics, and, you know, right? I, I don't love. I mean, well, I mean, you know what I mean. It's just like it's basically, you know, I, it's 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 nice to think that politics should be about true things, but <laughs> like, it's just not. And right, uh, but but we can criticize it and say that it wasn't true, and we don't have to be okay with that. I, you know, I mean, I, I, the, 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 so this is what I'm, I'm sort of getting at. I feel like, you know, you, 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 uh, 
feel like you need to be pointing out that this was untrue and, you know, we're better than speaking untruths. Whereas <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not, not feeling any ownership of it. I'm just sitting back and sort of quietly clapping as, you know, all the sort of, oh my God, we saved democracy people. I'm like, yeah, sure you did. Yeah, you did. You got played and good for the people that played you because as a genius political move, that's, that's literally my pose in all of this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that they got played. I'm fine with that because, yeah. you know, I don't know what Biden believes in his heart. Um, his maybe hard for heart. Him it- <laughs> <laughs> the hard heart. The hard heart of uh, of uh, Dark Brandon, man. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't followed all the Dark Brandon stuff, but we don't have to go into that rabbit hole. But I did want to. Um, I did want to bring up the okay. So wanting Trump to run again because he can be blown out, and that will discredit the Republican Party further. They'll be the party of losers. All of that. Um, I I don't know if I want to take a chance on that. So I can see how Democratic strategists are thinking to themselves, oh, wouldn't it be great if Trump is the candidate again instead of DeSantis because DeSantis is competent and um, Trump will self-destruct? I just it's it sounds a bit too much like the reasoning that I heard in 2015 and 2016 when you know, a lot of people wanted Trump to be the, a lot of Democrats wanted Trump to be the nominee because they thought he'd be easier to beat. Let's name uh, names. John Chait was the number one proponent. Famously oh, wrote that article back uh, in in, in yeah. 2016 about that being like, oh, this is great. You know, this is exactly <laughs> the person we need. And that's what I, was, I thought it was really interesting, you know, reading Chait's stuff. Now, you know, he wrote an article before the election, uh, before the midterms uh, about DeSantis, you know, which, you know, I, I, I invite you to read and I invite our readers to read because I went and read it after DeSantis's big win to see, you know, what the what actually is the, the horrific core, you know, the, the molten, you know, heart of evil beating at the center of DeSantis. And honestly, I, I think Chait did a valiant effort trying to do it, but I was certainly not convinced. I was like, oh, OK, this, this is fine, basically. Um, but, you know, what was so, the argument? Like, what are the evil things that DeSantis has done? So, so here's the thing. It was before the midterms. Uh, sorry, it was right after the midterms. And then I went on this trip, and I, 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 I don't remember honestly. That's that's the the extent of what I can tell you. That like nothing in that piece jumped out at me as threat to the republic. Yeah, he's a he's he's a he's a populist. Um, you know, he's anti-immigrant. I think I think the anti-immigrant part was maybe the strongest thing. You know that, that yeah, that's saying. all you got. That's not and a that, whole and lot that, to go on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so so you know. Chait wrote that piece before, and then uh, I think he wrote a very perceptive piece right after the midterms, which was saying more or less, uh, you know, openly, uh, you know, um, trying to link uh, Republicans to to uh, to Trump again, and saying if that article I remember a little better, it was something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, it just proves that uh, Republicans, uh, you know, will not be able to actually motivate the base uh, without Trump on the ticket, I think was his argument, which actually that goes to your argument that this, this is playing with fire because it, it, it may well be true that if Trump is actually running as opposed to just sort of nominating, handpicking people and standing back and seeing what happens, uh, that he will nominate, uh, you know, motivate the base to a certain extent and it won't be the blowout that everyone expects, you know, after these midterms. And But it's and- not even just about motivating the base. It's that in a deeply polarized electorate, a 50-50 country – um, almost quite literally 50-50, at least as far as the midterm results 
Um, I think actually Republicans did slightly better, maybe by 3% in the overall national vote. But anyway, it's a pretty closely divided um, electorate. Um, so then if there's only two candidates, then there's always a chance that someone like Trump could win somehow. Yeah. And that's what we should have learned in 2016. I'm just surprised that we're having this same conversation over. Do people just not learn? They want to play with fire again? What if something happens to Biden in the days leading up to the vote? What if, you know, God forbid, you know, Biden has serious health issues um, before the election, or there's some kind of October surprise, or maybe Trump somehow moderates? Yeah. And like somehow is able to appeal to a growing number of Hispanics, brown people, Arabs. Um, There are a growing number of brown folks who probably aren't going to vote for Democrats next time around. Do we really want to test this? Do we really want to see what happens? Are we so confident that Trump will be blown? I'm I'm just, it's just, it's, it's not just cynical. It's, it's, um, it's tempting fate. And if, you know, if you believe in God, yeah. then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm being slightly flippant here, but you generally don't want to invite God's wrath in such a manner. Yeah, don't tempt, don't, don't tempt the, the, the Lord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because vengeance. what if the Lord decides to tip the scales? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Look, the I Lord mean, can do that. Uh, here's here's what what I'm what I'm least enthused about is is as you said, if if something were to happen to Biden in the run up, I, I I don't, I I can't contemplate voting Kamala Harris versus Trump. I just can't. Like, no, you just probably abstain, and that's okay. I I mean it's okay, but it's kind of isn't because like Trump's pretty bad. Like you know I I, I don't want to <laughs> mince words about that. Um, Okay, but if you think that Trump is that bad, then you would vote for Kamala. Right, so but I, then, do I, then really, I, I don't really buy this. But that's—I mean, you're right. I mean, but that's—I'd have to face that, and 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 I really think she would be terrible for the country. Um, yeah, but how terrible, really? I, let's also not exaggerate here. Like, how bad would a Kamala administration actually be? It it would not be the end of the world. Yeah. No. I mean, look. I mean, to the to the extent uh, that Trump is sort of like malevolent and incompetent. And she's just merely incompetent and, you know, platitudinous and incompetent. I guess I, I guess I'd, I'd have to vote for the non-malevolent incompetent at that point and hope that, you know, she she at least wouldn't be fighting the deep state. The deep state would run her. And yeah, you know, so I guess yeah. I guess that's fair. Yeah, I'd, I'd vote for the the uh, the, you know, less less toxic incompetent at that point, which is what all elections essentially are voting for the less the lesser evil. evil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how does that how does that play into your your, you know, minimal democracy? I mean, isn't it I, I you know, is it isn't it bad if we're you know, that deep polarization and we're just sort of doing negative partisanship? Does it is that does that do anything to your minimal democracy theory? And, you know, how, how would it, though? Um, Because if it's if, if pure negative partisanship uh, increasingly determines everything, uh, I, I feel like one of the correlations of that, and we're seeing it already, uh, you know, arguably even without Trump, we were seeing it, is that negative partisanship necessarily leads to a delegitimization of the system. Because, you know, uh, if you're just voting against the other side, and that's what all that's motivating you, and it's motivated you for 20 years to do just that, 
the next thing that happens is is to say, well, you know, uh, questions about legitimacy of the, of the process, questions about the other side being so bad that they would, you know, destroy the country. Uh, you you lose that sense of common purpose, right? If you're if you're solely motivated by by negative partisanship, I don't Isn't think that- we need common purpose. But you know me on this. I, I don't believe in consensus. Not a common union. purpose, not consensus. But you do believe that you need that 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 minimum respect for the uh, for the other side winning. And negative partisanship yeah, really but- does mean that the other side, you know, at the limit, is you know the end of the republic because that's what we're getting at. Yeah, with you know, a lot of I'm this just stuff. not sure. I'm not sure I see that link because I, for example, will. Um, Continue voting for the Democratic Party, not because I like the Democratic Party, but because Republicans are worse. I don't, but I'm also someone who is more than comfortable saying that if Trump wins in 2024, fair and square, we have to respect that as a legitimate outcome. I don't see that one follows the other. Hmm. I think it's perfectly fine to be like negatively partisan, but still not because, you know, protest votes are part of the Democratic process, you know, in in a lot of the world, you know, even when we look at Italy, why did they vote for a far right party? You know, a lot of Italians voted. I mean, well, yeah, that too. Well, yes, but also as a protest vote, it doesn't mean they necessarily love the brothers of Italy. It's that they want to send a message to the incumbents that they're pretty angry about the status quo, right? So it seems, that seems totally, it seems fine. Um, it's the utopians that I'm most concerned about, the the ones who believe in this perpetual arc of history bending, because that that's different than negative partisanship. That is about having a certain teleological view of human history. Yeah. And if anyone stops the progress of history, then they are enemies of the state. They are enemies of progress. But that's not that's not negative partisanship on its own. That's like a different level, and those are the ones that I'm most concerned about. I think. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? No, oh, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, that's the you know the the thing that 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 uh, yeah maybe we should also keep in mind, and and what I think is a is, was a good reminder of um, during the midterms is that you know our our sort of very online lives um, and how we even conceive of these. Uh, these fights uh, and these elections, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was, it's very hard to actually nail down any sort of, I think, very coherent narrative for what happened in the midterms, um, you know, and if nothing else, the inability to nail down any sort of narrative just proves how healthy democracy is in the country, right? I mean, I think that's the, well main, the main takeaway I could get from the elections, like, huh, okay, everything's actually pretty good. Like, I, I you know, I am, I am, just perpetually impressed by American democracy, the resilience of our system. I don't want to go overboard. I'm not like trolling people here, but I really, it is incredible. It is incredible. So, you know, even if you look at election day itself and people have memory hold this already, no one talks about this anymore, but there were so many warnings about voter intimidation at the polls that lit like there would be violence. People wouldn't, I mean, and I was reading this NPR article. So, you know, from a, not just an objective source, but a source that would be predisposed to emphasizing irregularities and Republicans, you know, doing foul things at the ballot box. I think they said something like in this article, included link in the show notes, that there were literally no major incidents. Yeah. 
that it was just like the normal snafus that you have in any electoral cycle. But they they couldn't even like come up with incidents to highlight as, you know, so the fact that in the run up, we kept on hearing these warnings and basically none of it came to pass. First of all, it tells you that people who are being alarmist were basically taking the piss. Yeah. But it also tells us that our democracy is resilient and we should be proud of that and happy about that. And that's why like, I'm, I've never been more, you know, again, I want to be careful about not overstating this. My brother will probably have an issue with it if I do. But I've, I've never been more confident about American democracy not only surviving, because that's pretty basic, but flourishing. Yeah. I mean, I just have the, the idea that our democracy could ever die, the idea that we would descend into civil war. I actually feel... I, I feel a little bit sheepish for entertaining these worst case scenarios. They didn't even deserve to be entertained. I agree. The idea of a civil war, and you know, people can say, "Well, we didn't mean a civil war literally." But no, then we what's did. the point we did. of you? And you and oh, I talked we about did? it. We t- we talked about it in those terms. I mean, we took it seriously in our discussions. I think we both ended up saying it's probably not going to happen, but we took it seriously. <laughs> I, well, I, mean, I, I feel bad for taking it seriously. Well, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I, I do sort of want to get into that because that's, I think, part of this like very online world that we live in and how it's good to just sort of snap out of that every so often. But, <clears throat> you know, just to, to add something and maybe, you know, uh, since we're we're talking to your brother directly, uh, I, I thought Jason Willick just, you know, just today published a really good piece, which is another thing that I think was very, was very much a token of faith among Democrats, which is that, uh, you know, that, that. Specifically, you know, that most of our institutions are counter-majoritarian and, and uh, imperfectly reflect the true nature of the country uh, and that Democrats are, are fundamentally disadvantaged in the Senate. And Jason goes through both the House races and Senate races, points out that like none of that has basically come to pass in, this, in these midterms, that basically the, the midterms show, uh, I think, reasonably faithfully reflect the deep polarization and division in the country at this point. And that, you know, neither party with all the sort of talk about, you know, we need to abolish the filibuster. We need to like basically, uh, well, you know, we can still talk about the court, I guess, but like, you know, that, that, uh, you know, there's talk about, about, uh, expanding the house and therefore, you know, again, somehow, um, making, you know, making the Senate less vital and, and the rest of it because it's, it's counter-majoritarian and evil. It's just not true. It's just literally not true. Or not at least, only is it not true, <clears throat> yeah. it, it's like more than not true. Because if you look at, um, I don't know the latest numbers because I know that people were still calculating, but if if I recall, um, it was it was a 3% spread on the national vote, as I, as, as I alluded to earlier. So Republicans actually won a lot more, you know, yeah. not a lot more, the but the popular you know, vote went to Republicans and they yeah, the freaking got exactly. slapped. Yeah. And, yeah. They, and they lost and they lost the Senate. Yeah. And the the House is much more evenly matched than yeah. anyone expected. So it's just funny that um and this is my basic critique that a lot of folks on on the Democratic Party side are just complete opportunists. They're completely outcomes oriented. They're not going to be complaining about the Senate. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's, it's so, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of it. It feels to me so incredibly cynical that people don't even pretend to have consistent principles of any sort. Well, let me, let me though say, I, maybe I'm being too generous to Democrats, i.e. the, the, you know, the, the sort of <clears throat> the brain trust that actually ran these elections uh, on, on, and I, and 
imputing cynicism to them. I think it, you know, and I, I wouldn't even impute opportunism to uh, what, what we're talking about now, this kind of stuff. I just think it's like, to me, what it points to is is actually how political science is is a, a sort of silly field, you know, when it comes down to, because you had so many political scientists talking about, you know, again, our, 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 our institutions are rigged up in such a way we need to, you know, come up with all sorts of fancy different ways to count votes, you know, from ranked choice voting on down and new innovations, less right. And like, you know, new constitutional convention, we really need to refound this country in a more, and, and I, it's, it's, to me, you know, all those arguments, you go back and look at them, it's like, well, I mean, we, we, we can try and do these things. You know, I, it's, I, I, maybe, maybe outcomes would be different. But it, it, to me, it's just, it, it, it points to like a, a deeper sort of rot and fraud in, in, the, in the whole sort of, I don't know, in a, in a field that is clearly itself quite partisan. And, uh, but then, you know, is, is really does, I think, takes itself very seriously as a science um, mm. on this sort of stuff. And it's, it's to me, these elections and a lot of those arguments are just delegitimizing about a lot of that sort of crap, you know? Hashtag no, not all political scientists. Yes, yes, yes. Let's I be know. fair here. Yes, political scientist Shadi Hamid, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's good not but, to be credentialed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think, look, I think you're right. You know, unfortunately, a lot of political scientists, I um, mean, some some listeners might recall the letters that scholars of democracy wrote about there has been a number of these things warning about american democracy dying and you know issuing these very alarmist statements and trying to represent the profession and saying basically we are the experts yeah. and we say this is happening um you know look it's 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 almost too easy to impugn experts and people who Look, we all do it to some extent. You know, I, you know, I sometimes fall back on expertise when it's useful to me. You know, no one's perfect. But to sort of say that political science says X, yeah. that's where I really get annoyed because it's sort of like the science says. It's all these appeals to a definitive position as if everyone in a particular profession has this view, which is almost never the case. There's always dissent. Yeah. There isn't anything approaching consensus among political scientists on a lot of these issues. But is there consensus among left-leaning political scientists? Well, yes. And that's where obviously, you know, ideological blinders p play a role. But so, you know, what, what's I think useful though at this point, uh, you know, for all of us that, that, that choose to do this is to, to, to now just point out that that how self-serving this is and you know i think the 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 worries about the fate of democracy are not going to go away because ultimately because it's 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 proven to be such an effective get out the vote tool so it's going to be here for this whole time but was it's, it though well i don't know i mean it's it's maybe not i'll take your point that that we don't know that but i think i think it's it's uh it's believed by enough rank and file people that democracy is in threat and what all the sort of uh, uh, you know, stoking of these fears in the run-up to the election have left a mark on a lot of people, just like, you know, COVID has left a mark on Taylor Lawrence, and, you know, uh, she <laughs> she, she, she uh, can't let that go. I feel a lot of people are not going to be able to let go of the fact that this election proves more or less, to my satisfaction, this country is actually pretty healthy. So, yeah. you know... Can I but, ask you this, though? Why yeah. can't people let go of things? Like, what's... 
not to say that we're like the better ones and that we're able to rise above and we're able to become when others can't become. But I think there's an interesting psychological question that sometimes sometimes people latch on to a particular narrative and it it ends up orienting their entire worldview and they can't let go. They can't adapt. They can't reconsider. And, you know, we're all we're all potentially you know, under threat from like, you know, we all have to protect against that. That's why I've said often that I worry about my dislike of the wokes distorting my political views. And I have to do what I can to protect against that. So Mm -hmm. I don't go overboard. Mm -hmm. So we all have to be vigilant. But I just wonder, like, some people can't, they can't let go. What's cool? Like, what is that about? Well, so... To what extent do you think that's, you know, just to get back to this, like this very online thing, you know, I, I here, here's something that, that struck me as, you know, Twitter is going through its convulsions, um, you know, Elon Musk doing some stuff, trolling a lot, uh, people losing their minds over it. Um, I remember journalists in particular, um, and I mean, I think you can speak to this. I just don't have a big enough following uh, and not enough people hate me to like properly experience it. But but a lot of people hate you online. You have a lot of followers. And, and you know, sometimes when I when I when I like actually take a peek at what's going on in your, you know, any one of these like threads that go viral that you do, it really is it's spectacular. Um, and And. You know, it's it's. I wonder to myself, like, you know, could I hack it? And you, you, you and I have talked about this, maybe not online, but but certainly in private. You know, like, um, what what that must be like. But but the 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 thing that I remember is uh, journalists. <coughs> excuse me, um, journalists complaining about bullying on Twitter, and the the real psychological damage that like this would do to them, you know, which, you know, is, seems to me like that echoes of that are what's also fueling this insane panic as like, you know, Elon Musk supposedly loosens the reins on discourse on Twitter and, you know, hate is, is flooding back onto the platform and and whatever else. Um, Maybe, maybe if you do have, you know, a hundred thousand followers, it, it becomes unwieldy and sort of emotionally draining and, and like really psychologically bad. But it always struck me that like, I don't know, I just, I just, I don't know who these people are on Twitter. If someone comes at me, it's like, I just, I, I, I get like my own personal little, you know, jolt of satisfaction when I tell them to go shut the hell up and, and, or I mute them without even responding to them. I just like move on with my life. Um, and, and there, there, there's something, there's something about like the, the very online life, I think that, that, is it that it, it accentuates a certain kind of fragility in people? Is it that fragile people are drawn to having a very online existence and then Hmm. they get sucked into it in such a way and that it like, it makes them worse? Uh, is it mental illness? Like we're talking about Kanye, you know, like I, does like being online make us mentally ill? You know, hmm. I, there was a, there was a, I don't know if you've ever, uh, read any essays by, uh, this, uh, this young woman called Catherine D, uh, default friend. She has like a oh. Substack. Um, she's like writes really interesting stuff. I'd actually would be really interesting to have her on, uh, at some That's point. That's a good I, idea. Okay. I read something by her two days ago, I think. 
um, which was really good about, you know, I, she writes these kind of, you know, rambling, I think usually very thoughtful, but kind of all over the place essays. And this one really, I think, did a good job at nailing down something about people's both like, you know, uh, like the, 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 uh, how their sense of self both becomes fragmented by being online and then also how their emotions and attachments to relationships online somehow get exaggerated and become more than they are. And it like, you know, she Mm. even like gestures that it leads to some kind of, you know, online autism and people and things like that. I don't know. I thought it was a really interesting and provocative, though not like there wasn't a single thesis in the piece, but I thought she was getting at some really good stuff. So I don't know, that sort of stuff's kicking around in my mind about like, you know, what what is it about this? And what is it about Twitter? And why are people so dumb online and and all the rest of this? Um, You know, I don't know. Does that that resonate? Oh, totally. And we should, we should probably have her on. That sounds really, really uh, relevant. Um, I think that, so I was thinking about this just the past few weeks with people leaving Twitter because of Elon Musk ostensibly, which I think is a bit of a bluff. Some people have though, as far as I can tell, or they're limiting their Twitter usage or they're protecting their accounts and going to alternatives like Mastodon, which I did join. Did you? Just to see what it's like. I have to send you something uh, about okay. basically how Mastodon, you know, actually is not freedom. I mean, basically, uh, who's... It's, I was going to say that. Look, yeah, I don't feel comfortable posting anything on Mastodon because there's a perpetual threat that the owners of the server yeah. that you're on will yeah. boot you out yep. if you say something that's not ideologically congruent. Exactly. So I'm on a, journal- I'm on a journalist um, server... Um, I, I, um, I was well, actually I thinking, get, I was thinking of setting up a wisdom of crowds master on server. Oh, actually. I thought cool, that would be kind actually. of a fun thing to do. I don't do. know. Well, I don't know if it would be cool, but maybe, yeah. <laughs> I could do that pretty easily. I mean, I, I, I remember I played with Mastodon, you know, before like normies actually, you know, uh, figured it out. I remember years ago, I was like, ah, oh, this is a pretty cool idea. Screw Twitter, screw having a corporation run this whole, whole sort of thing. So I played around with it. I'm sure it's better now than it was then. It was sort of a mess back then. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely like uh, – it's it's a fine app. Like it runs okay. It's just the issue that it doesn't encourage pluralism. It doesn't encourage alternative opinions. It doesn't mm. encourage dissent. And that's why I don't say anything on the server because I know right when I challenge the predominant view, they're pretty much all left of center journalists who are pretty woke. Mm. And I know that once I say something against, like, I don't know, Parker Malloy or something on, like, trans issues, um, <laughs> they're going to be like, oh. And I, all I wanted to say was, like, someone was making, making I think, a really um, tendentious argument about how – I can't even remember. I won't even, like, try to describe it. But basically, I, I wanted to – like, people can legitimately differ on the trans debate. Mm. And everyone was sort of basically saying there's only one right position to have on this. And all these people who question um, puberty blockers are basically the equivalent of bigots and racists. And they were just saying that, like, this is just the new front of the civil rights struggle is this was on your Mastodon server. Yeah. And the Mastodon journalist server. Good Lord. Yeah. And I thought I just wanted to just I thought. Well, I want to respond to something someone said and just be like, well, look, like reasonable people can disagree. There is a debate. 
people have a right to be concerned about how this affects their children, especially if it comes to long-term effects and so forth. But I'm like, even if I said something as gently phrased as that, yeah. I would be booted. Yeah. And I just don't like, well, I guess I would be okay. But, um, but the very fact that there's that this kind of self-censorship, I don't self-censor on Twitter. And yeah. that when people say, well, oh, free speech isn't like a real thing. No, Twitter is actually better on a lot of these metrics because you can say what you want to say without the fear of, well, you do have the fear of being hounded off Twitter. I get that. Yeah. But this is where I think I'm different than some people that I get attacked a lot, as you mentioned. It's never occurred, like, it's not the end of the world. And I, when I get it, when I get attacked, it's actually like pretty aggressive. Yeah. I don't like to, yeah. it's not, it's not for me to play the victim or to complain about it, but, um, yeah, people come at you. It's, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a, personal, it's, it's intense. But you seem very grounded. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're not, you're not a, you're not a mental patient. Whereas I feel like, <laughs> where I feel like a lot of people who, who have, you know, followings, not nearly as big as yours, but, you know, probably half yours, uh, successful journalists and things like that. And they wilt and, and they demand protection from Twitter, from mean people. And, you know, it's like, OK, doxing is one thing, death threats. Are, but even like death threats on Twitter are sort of like whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like. <sighs> OK, I've know. gotten threats of violence. I don't actually think it's worth um, reporting to the reporting cops. or making an issue of it. And um, even at times, you know, there have been times where, um, you know, folks at Brookings have come to me and said, Shadi, you know, we've seen that you've been getting attacked a lot. And and even some threat, you know, there's some threats that we've seen and, and that sort of thing. And just to know that we're keeping an eye on that. And, I, you know, I appreciate it yeah. because, you know, at some point it could actually be a concern. I mean, I hope it I hope it won't become that. But, you know, in the ISIS period, there were actually um um, I don't want to say too much about it, but like, you know, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of us who have public profiles have had to think about issues around personal security and so forth. Um, Did you, you know, see the story that, that Iran is trying to kill Bernard Henri Levy? Speaking of that. Oh, yeah, I saw I, I was I, I didn't read the article. I was shocked to see that, though, because yeah. that's kind of crazy. I right? mean, it wasn't the, the, the article wasn't about him. He was listed as one of many, many people. But that, you know, the Iranian state is now basically, you know, sponsoring hits on all sorts of prominent critics. And he was among them. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, so that that should put things in, into perspective. Um, people like him have to actually be concerned about their livelihoods and some people actually have to hire, you know, security and actually, you know, change their lives in some way. And of Salman course, we know Rushdie. what happened to Salman Rushdie yeah. a couple of months back. So it's just kind of silly to me that it's just it's absurd. Like it's so people have the right to be mean to you. People have the right to call you names. Um, that's part of what it means to be a public figure. And some people just think that it's almost their birthright to not be criticized or to not be attacked. Um, and people have every right to personally attack me and to use racist slurs against me and to say that I'm an, you know, whatever it might be, an Uncle Tom, a brown trader, whatever, you know, the whole list of things. Yeah. People can say whatever they want. It's not the end of the world. And it's almost disrespectful to people whose lives are really on the line, like, you know, whatever you want to say about Bernard Henri Levy, I mean, he's sort of absurd in his own way, but he's also, he's also, you know, dealing with 
serious things like that because he is famous enough and apparently he is enough of a target for the Iranian authorities to consider doing something against him. Yeah, they perceive him as enough of a threat to, you know, actually invest $150,000 apparently to have him killed, which, you know, it's not nothing. It's certainly not nothing. Yeah, that is – okay, that is – I didn't know that was the price ta- – that's actually – that's pretty serious. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 quite. Quite wow, serious. Wow, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. but Maybe it's part of it is that these journalist folks and like, I don't know, vaguely center-left commentators who think that they have the truth, that they're just so used to being – there's a certain sense of entitlement. They're used to being deferred to. They think that they should be the gatekeepers. They, they're they the ones who think that they should be the arbiters of what's misinformation yeah. and what's not misinformation. So I think some of it has to do with how they perceive their role in society. Does that yeah. does that sound no, right? I think so. I think so. Look, I mean, I, I think you, you hit your you hit the nail on the head with misinformation, disinformation. I mean, it's just like it's faulty epistemology on the part of these people. Like, you know, what is knowledge? What is the truth? They don't ever, ever ask these questions. Uh, not in any sort of meaningful way. It's just self-evident to them. And it's just like, well, obviously this is true. And, you know, and then it's, then we're off to the races with that sort of stuff. That entitlement to it is, I think, key. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, the only, the only thing as I think about all of this is that, you know, you, you get a lot of sort of, you know, racially motivated stuff and, and, uh, um, uh, religiously motivated stuff and, and, and some violence. I, 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 I do, think probably women's experience on online is much worse than men's though. I, I just think that just like add on top of that, just, uh, you know, most people trying to have sex with them and, or like if they hate them, like making rape, like rape violence, you know, like, I think, I feel like yeah, probably no doubt. for yeah. women, it like, as soon as there's some like hatred towards women, it turns to like rape threats. And I, I can imagine that's actually, you know, a level of unpleasant that, that we don't have to deal with. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And so um, and that's why it's male journalists and commentators who complain about being victims that are the worst yeah. because they have really nothing to stand on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But still, but look, you know, not yeah. everyone can be as great as we are. That's the bottom line. <laughs> that here. is the bottom line. That is absolutely the bottom line. Stick around for a truly weird part two of the episode. Theology, democracy and Asia. This one has it all. Become a paying subscriber at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us for the second half.